0: And so today we'll be talking about our confidence for the Christian, their confidence in Christ and who he is and what that reveals about them. And, and in our student ministry, we have a saying that we use. And about at the start of every sermon, right about now, I, I look at them and I ask them to get three things. And students, what are they? A Bible, a pen, and paper. So, so parents, I'm going to hold you to the same level. If you would... Grab a Bible and turn with me to 1 John, the end of chapter 2 leading into chapter 3. If you'd have a paper, whether it's a notebook or an iPad, or you you have the bulletin there, and and then there's a pen or a pencil in some of the seats right in front of you, or maybe you brought them yourselves. But we want to be taking notes and following along with what the Word of God teaches us, that we can be faithful. So with your Bible in hand, turn to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, and we'll actually go all the way through, through chapter 3, verse 3. So 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3, and with your paper and pen ready, you can go ahead and title today's notes, The Christian's Confidence in Christ, or if you want to personalize it, My Confidence in Christ. And so, as I was preparing for this week, I got sent, uh, I got sent an encouragement this morning that said that, we, that the aim of our preaching should to please God and not man. It should des- desire to comfort the afflicted, and not with any lofty or clever speech, but with the word of God. And so my heart, just as it is when I'm with the students, is to see them know and come to love Christ, my heart, for you, parents and adults, family of God, my heart, is that we look into the word of God, and we can please God in knowing him more, and we can be comforted by what he tells us. If you'll bow your head and pray with me one more time. Lord Jesus, let us be faithful to your word. Use me as just a minister of your your gospel. Let me share what you have written in in this text, that it might be an encouragement to us at fellowship, as as the family of God. Let it be living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut through bone and marrow, divide soul and spirit, and look into the intentions of our heart. And let not one of us go unchanged from here after hearing and interacting with your word. Let us be encouraged and convicted of sin, encouraged in you and convicted of our own sin, and let us be emboldened as we go into our world. We pray this all in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. We've been working through, and we're about halfway at this point, we're, we're working through the, the, the book of 1 John. And I love 1 John, not because it was drilled into me in high school by, by Mark Julian, and not because it's, it's an easy enough five chapter to read one every workday of a week, but I love 1 John because John's writing is, is, is a man's man's writing, and for this reason, as he's very clear about his intentions. So you can't get lost along the way. He over and over again, John reminds you and tells you exactly what he's focusing on. And it's helpful for me as I read 1 John to know this is the point he's trying to communicate. And over and over again through it, you may have noticed he writes the same saying of, I am writing to you so that. I'm writing to you so that your joy may be complete. He starts in 1 John 1, 4. He says, I want your joy to be complete. That's the purpose of my writing in this portion. And he goes to chapter 2, 1. He says, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. He continues on in 2, 21. I'm writing to you because you know the truth and there is no lie within the truth. Last week in, in chapter 2, 26, Kevin talked about how he wrote, I'm writing to you about those trying to deceive you about the antichrists that are coming and have come. And at the end of his book, he writes in in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I am writing to you that you may know that you have eternal life. I love John's writing because I don't get lost in it, because he's reminded me over and over again what he's talking about. And so this week, we are coming off of 2.26, where he says, I'm writing to you about those trying to deceive you as a warning, and we're leading into, he's, hey, he has a long runway to get to 5.13, that you may know you have eternal life. Kevin spoke of the antichrist or or the deceiver and the accuser. And and this this antichrist, this this opposite of Christ is the antithesis of who Christ was, the the opposite of the thesis or the main point of Christ. And, And instead of coming to save and redeem and restore, he comes to corrupt, to condemn, and to cast away and entangle those of us who, on earth so that we may never know the love of the father but in verse 28 we get started in first john 2:28, and we get started with these simple words and we're going to get four words in it says and now little children a saying that that john has used over and over again and now little children you see, he talks about how we belong to Christ and not the Antichrist. We, we belong to the thesis of the gospel, not the antithesis, not the accuser. And so today we're going to structure this, this sermon, or we're going to structure this text into three things we're confident into. And I'm not going to tell you just yet what the first one is, because my notes say don't say yet. But what we first need to know is what does it mean that we are children of God? Right. We, we may have sat in a, a VBS or a Backyards Kids Club and we have understood Jesus to be the son of God, begotten from him, always have been. And it's easy to say, yes, Christ is his son. Son, but how do we take that place as well? And it is in position of where Christ had been. Some scriptural support for this, as we look, is Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. It says, "...giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son." In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the word I want to key into here in Colossians 1, 2 through 14, or 12 through 14, in verse 12 it says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He's qualified you, and if you were being qualified by him, it meant at one point we were disqualified. Disqualified. Out of the running, no contest. You see, if if you get disqualified from a race, it's not because you were slower. The fastest man in the race, or the fastest woman in the race, could be disqualified by stepping over their, their lane, by taking off too soon, by by abusing the rules. And we, in the, the running for our righteous stance and in, in, our, in our, our, our relationship with God, we, in our, our desire to have that, we're disqualified by our sin. Each one of us choosing our own ways over God. Each one of us rejecting his commands at some point to interpose our own. And we, in doing so, disqualify ourselves that we are, no, that we are not considered children of God, but we are considered enemies. And that's vastly different. Romans 8, 14-17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, And it says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children of God, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. Christ saw our disqualified sin, And he saw us as enemies, and yet he came to die and took the punishment that an enemy deserves, the punishment of treason, so that we can walk into the home of God with the confidence as a son or a daughter adopted by him. Romans 8 said that we did not receive a slavery or a spirit of slavery, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons. To boldly run to the throne of grace, to be made heirs with Christ, that all that Christ was given in the prestige, in the, the, the love from the Father in the intimacy with him, we are given because Christ has acted on our behalf and his spirit has moved and acted on us, making us the recipients of grace. That's the common ground we need to start on before we can get to our first point. And our first point is this. That our confidence as Christians is in Christ's resurrection or in the resurrection of Christ. Our confidence, uh, another way, our confidence lies in the absence of where his body was supposed to. We are confident in in where our salvation lies in an empty tomb because Christ got up and walked and didn't stay there and he has overcome death, proving to be the son of God, proving to do what he said he would do. And this isn't, and this isn't just religious speculation, but it's recorded by over and over again Jewish historians, one, one of the most famous being Josephus, who in, his, in a book that he was composing about the political and, and religious and just historical account of the first century, a Jewish historian, he writes, Now there was about at this time a wise man, if it is lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men, as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, the leaders among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. Here's the key part. For he appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophet had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things to concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct to this day. Whew. That confidence from the early church echoes through history to today that we have always been confident in the resurrection of Christ. And they never disputed an empty tomb. Josephus there makes it clear that that Christ rose and they're trying to make sense of it. But every Jewish argument, every argument made about Christ always concedes that nothing was in the tomb. They argue, well, maybe someone stole the body or maybe, maybe he was never buried there. No one argues that the tomb was empty. It's a foolish point to make. Everything about the evidence is is untrustworthy from the account of who's telling it, but it is lines up over and over again with valid claims. And what what I mean by that, that may have come off confusing, is if you were trying to fictitiously make up a religion, you wouldn't choose Jerusalem. And you wouldn't choose a a major public area. You wouldn't choose a a punishment by the Romans who would keep records. You wouldn't choose a tomb owned by a specific man who gave it up. You wouldn't choose women to find them. You certainly wouldn't choose that he revealed himself to to many people after. All those claims are so easily refuted if they're not true. And yet they are. And when Christ rose again, and the reason we're confident in this is because history declares it, and his his word declares it, and history affirms it, And Christ rose again, overcoming sin and death, so that we may be confident that we will too. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. And we could stop there if our confidence was just in the crucifixion. And that's all Galatians 2.20 would say. But no, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are confident in Christ's resurrection and it impacts the way we confidently live in that truth. We're confident that he has given us the spirit of adoption and not a spirit of slavery and sin that we must run and hide in the coming of the Lord. One of my favorite ideas in scripture is we know the story of, of Adam and Eve in the garden where, where they take the fruit and they eat it and they realize their sin and they realize they're naked and they go and make for themselves some, some fig leaves possibly and they, they're hiding as the Lord walks through the garden. And I remember it was supposed to me. God walks through the garden. He says, Adam, Eve, where are you? Where'd you go? As if he doesn't know they're behind this bush that he made and the garden he, he was the architect of to the creation that he breathed life into. He, he says, where'd you go? And how, how different would the story of all of the Bible have been? If Adam just stood up and said, I'm here, Lord. I blew it. I messed up. We ate. We, 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 we were undeserving of this garden and this life you've given us. How would that shape the whole story of human history? But it's not what happens. They stay hidden. They cower because at that point they were in the the spirit of slavery and they're in the fear that they should have of a just God. And that's not the spirit we've been promised. We've been promised the spirit of adoption. Right? And the, the beauty of adoption isn't just that a child leaves a, a lousy home or family or a child is taken out of a, maybe an unhealthy area. The beauty of adoption is when the child comes to the healthy family and the family that loves them and supports them and cares for them and lets them be their children. So the beauty of the gospel isn't that we don't have to sin anymore. Or it isn't that that our punishment falls away because of Christ, but but that we have been given the standing that Christ has as a son or a daughter of God. And we are co-heirs with him. 1 Corinthians 15 will repeatedly talk on this idea of the, the resurrection and our confidence in it and the necessity that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then there's no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, there's no hope that he'll come back for us and we'll have no resurrection with him. And this leads us past the first four verses of 2 Corinthians 2, 28. We can look further and it says, and now little children, or did I say Corinthians, 1 John 2, 28, my bad. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Abide. In him over and over again, first John will talk about abiding and walking. And why do we abide in him? Why do we walk with Christ? It is because he is coming back, and we want to be confident in Christ's return. So, our second point this morning of the confidence of the Christian not only are we confident that he was resurrected, but we are confident if he was resurrected that he will return. No doubt. Our whole hope is built on the confidence of him coming back. And this word that says, when he appears, right, right there in verse 28, uh, that abide in him, so that when he appears, it, it, it can translate one of two ways. It says, when he appears, or the word, if. If he appears. Now, that's not, that's not to imply that he may or may not come back. I love that the English translation chooses when he appears because there's confidence in it but what I want us to just pluck from the idea of if he appears is this. If he appears today. If he were to appear today, would you be confident in the way that you're abiding in him? Would we be found faithful so that we don't have the the spirit of of, sh- of slavery and shame that we shrink back, but we approach him gladly as a son or daughter. I'll give you this story. Growing up, we, had, we were given chores, and, and my least, one of my least favorite chores to this day is the dishwasher. I cannot stand emptying the dishwasher. They're, they're already clean. Why don't you just leave them in there? But <laughs> my mom and dad, they would leave and, and they, would, they would do this. Maybe, maybe students, this happens with you. They tell you, I'm going to go for a little while. When I come back, I want the dishwasher empty. Yeah? Does that happen? It happened for me. And, and what would inevitably happen is I would wave my parents goodbye and say, got it. I'll, I'll get that done. And they would Drive down the driveway, and I would go to the Xbox, and I would play, and I would have a great time. Or I would go outside and and have fun, and we would be be playing, or my sisters and I would just get off course somewhere. And there was a terrifying sound of doors closing outside in the driveway when my parents would roll up and it would be a mad dash to the kitchen, and we would throw open the doors, and we would pull out the, 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 or we'd throw open the door and pull out the drawers, and one of us would take silverware, one of us would go to the bolts, and we were frantic, and it was, about, it was about 50-50 on if we finished the chores that day. And I'll admit, more often than not actually, when, it, when left to my own devices, I was not found faithful to fulfill emptying the dishwasher for my mom and dad. And how much more so when Christ returns is it important that we are found faithful? 1 Corinthians 4 it says, verses 1 and 2 Paul talking about Christians and And he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God, that it's been entrusted to us, that it's a responsibility given to us. And moreover, more so, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And so when John says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may be confident, He's asking us, are you abiding in him actively, presently, so that when he returns, if he returns today, we would be found faithful. That is where we find our confidence in Christ's return. We are confident that he has made us equals with him. We are confident in his resurrection, or in his resurrection, resurrection, and we are confident in his return because we have been given a spirit of God sealing us as a promise and changing and moving in our hearts that we reflect that. And, and it, as it talks about abiding, he goes on to verse 29, and he, he uses this key word of everyone who practices righteousness has been born again. And for our athletes, this word practice holds a certain weight to it, or maybe for our musicians it holds a weight to it, or anyone who has a talent or skill that requires practice, that word should resonate a little deeper. You see, growing up, we would play football on Wednesday nights and Sunday afternoons, and so I would go out and I would play football on Wednesday nights and Sunday afternoons, and I would not consider myself a football player although I would go and partake in the game I what didn't have I wasn't cut out to play for the Cowboys I just didn't have the talent or the work ethic or the drive but I would play the game it was recreation for me But for the athlete for the football player It's not recreation, it is work to practice over and over again again, drills that may or may not take place in the game when the time counts. And so when we talk about the righteous people, the people who are living and abiding in Christ, are we finding ourselves as those who play Christians and it's a recreation, or are we finding ourselves faithful to practice it so that if he appears at any moment, we would be able to run to him confident that we have been made new, no need to shrink back. You See, when Christ comes, he'll recognize his people by their righteousness and the love they have for others. He'll recognize them by the sweat and calluses gained serving others. He'll recognize them by the bruised knee, the bruised knees that they have from falling to their knees in prayer for, for their sin and for others. He'll recognize them by their, their tear-streamed faces over crying for their sin and for the lost world around them. And in Hebrews 12:4, the writer of Hebrews writes this amazing, convicting sentence that says, In your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Man, guys, that's, that's practice. That's confidence in him's return. And so going in towards our last point, I'm actually changed it so the slide won't line up exactly. I apologize, but that our confidence is in Christ's reason for saving us. The Christian's confidence or my confidence in living this life that will be found faithful is in Christ's reason for saving me. I'll say it like this. I may be talking about living and practicing righteousness, and, and you might think, yes, that makes sense. I see how the Word of God tells us that. And yet it's intimidating to think, am I holding up that standard that's been pit on me? Am, am, will I be found faithful enough? Will I, will I have done enough? Will my, will my tears have gathered enough and my service been faithful to what my calling is? And it may have struck fear in your heart, Christian, to say, I don't know if I'm doing that. Have I resisted sin to the point of shedding blood? And if that's our fear, then our confidence has been misplaced. Our confidence is in Christ's reason for choosing us, and this is one of my favorite verses in 1 John. 1 John 3. Verse one, would you look at it with me? It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. This verse was spoken to me, a young legalistic Christian thinking I had to uphold it all on my own. That grace just meant a second chance. And I want you to know Christ loves you and has called you. In every sin and downfall and backsliding and mess up, he has called and loved you. Not your idealized version of you. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want your Facebook profile version of you as a Christian. He doesn't want your, your Instagram best. He doesn't even want the Sunday morning Christian. He wants you from some Sunday morning to Saturday night. Morning to evening, to everything. Not the workdays, not the weekends, all of it. And he saved you to say that you are a child of God, and if he calls you that, so you are. There is no fine print or writing in that And his reason for saving you. His reason was not so that he would he would gather all these Christians and and look at the Father and say, look, God, I got the cream of the crop. They're the best on earth I could find. Our confidence isn't in that. Our confidence is that he says, Lord, look at these broken, terrible, filthy, rotten sinners. Look how much your grace can extend to them. He took the compost and turned it to the creme de la creme, the best that we might be seen as children of God in our confidence is in his reason for choosing you, and calling you, and acting upon you, and saving you. That we may be called children of God, and so we are. Finishing out verse one through three, it says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. Now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because, he, or because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So I'm going to close with this. For the child of God, and so you are, no stipulations of where you're at in that walk, the child of God saved by grace, confident in the resurrection, confident in his return, confident for his reason. Look at verse 3-2 this week. Beloved, we are children of God, and we do not know what, or, and, and now we will be, or what we will be has not yet appeared to us, but we will be as him when he returns. Meditate on that that way this week. Let that be our hope and say, Christ, I can't wait for you to come home, for you to call me home. I remember looking at my best man before I got to, got to go in for our wedding, and, and I looked at him, and I turned to Bradley seconds, seconds before going in. I said, how would Christ feel coming back for his church? And we had talked over and over again in depth about if, if moments before that, if moments before we said, I do, and got married, if Christ came home, would I, if he called me home, would I be upset and feel cheated? Or would it be the greatest joy of my life to, to leave this earth in its sweetest moment and go and be with Christ? Christian, hold to 3-2 and look forward to the hope we have coming that he is worthy and if you if you walked in here today then you maybe don't feel confident in christ and in the story of who jesus was and you don't feel confident that he was perfect or you do not feel confident that he was raised from the dead or you don't even feel confident in all of what we've been talking about today if if all of that wasn't you consider those earlier words when he returns if he returns today because i'm confident of this jesus is coming back and i don't want to see any of us left behind And so, if you are, if that's weighing on you, if that's something you have questions on, if that's something you want to be encouraged in so that you can say, I am confident in Christ, come find me. Come find Drew. Find one of our elders. Find anyone who leaves here with a smiling face, knowing they're confident. And say, I want to know and have just a little bit of what you have. Can you tell me? And guys, I bet you we would love to take a lunch or a coffee day or 30, 45 minutes and just work through every question and fear you have. Because we are confident he's coming back and we are confident that there's room in the kingdom for you too.